Ah, spring. The season of rebirth. When we put aside the anger and the bitterness of a dreary winter, and we look forward to fresh starts. Yes, baseball is back, my friends. The Philadelphia Phillies begin the 2017 regular season in one week. But here, right now, welcome, my friends, to the first Phillies Nation podcast. Yo, Phillies Nation, welcome to the first Phillies Nation podcast. My name is Tim Malcolm. I am the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Welcome to the first full Phillies Nation podcast. We are available on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Spreaker, on TuneIn Radio, on iHeartRadio, and on our YouTube account at Phillies Nation. You can find our website at philliesnation.com. We are on Twitter at philliesnation. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. We're on Instagram at philliesnation. All over the place. Please check us out. We are so glad to have you here for the first full Phillies Nation podcast. We are one week from baseball, my friends. One week from Phillies baseball. This is the most exciting time of the year for me. I can't wait until opening day. It's going to be a great time. The Phillies playing Cincinnati at Great American Ballpark. Not a bad ballpark. I've been there before. But this is it. First, first podcast and one week from baseball. This is really exciting stuff. We have a great show today. We're going to bring in Dan Walsh of philliesnation.com to talk about the spring training, uh, how the Phillies fared in Clearwater. We're also going to talk to him about the 2017 season, looking at how the Phillies might do this year. What's the worst that could happen with them? And also, what's the prediction? Are we thinking maybe an 81-81 team this year? Is it out of the question that they finish 500? I don't think it is. We're also going to talk with someone who is near and dear to our hearts, the former senior editor of Phillies Nation, and currently on CBS3 Eyewitness News this morning, Pat Gallon is coming on the show to talk about growing up as a Phillies fan and what it's like to be a reporter for the Phillies or of the Phillies when you are a longtime Phillies fan. Uh, very interesting stuff that we had to talk about, plus the 1993 Phillies and so much more fun stuff. But I wanted to start first off today with the news that was obviously a major blow to the Phillies organization last week. Dallas Green died at the age of 82 on Wednesday, and it was very, very sad. We saw a lot of remembrances and a lot of memories over the course of a couple days. It's going to stay with the Phillies for a long time, obviously. Dallas was such a larger-than-life personality for the organization if you had a chance, please read Jim Salisbury's piece. Jim Salisbury, longtime beat reporter of the Phillies at CSNPhilly.com, wrote a really beautiful piece about Dallas and his legacy. Also, they were really good friends, and that has a lot of that in there. You really get that emotion. Jim did a great job with it. He's a great reporter to begin with, but it's a really good piece. Please read that if you get a chance. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what Dallas Green means as, for Phillies fans at least, what he means to Phillies fans. And recently we were doing the 50 greatest Phillies games in the last 50 years. In fact, today is the number one game. You know what it is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I wrote a lot of those pieces, and I wrote a lot of pieces about the 1980 Phillies. I wrote the piece about the NLE's clincher against Montreal when Mike Schmidt hit that big home run. And I wrote a couple of the 1980 NLCS games when they played the Astros in that unbelievable series. 
mean, that was great baseball back in 1980. And I talked with my dad about that series and where he was and how crazy it was and how good the Astros were. Dallas Green really was, I think, the main reason that team won those games. Yeah, the players obviously have to do their job. But Dallas Green's managing in that series and in the World Series was unbelievable at times, especially in that Game 5. He made a really great double switch late in the game where he took out the pitcher spot and he put, I believe it was he put um, Greg Gross in the pitcher spot. And so when his spot came up in the order, surprisingly, Greg Gross had an opportunity to have a big hit. He laid down a perfect bunt that loaded the bases that really started off that Philly's great rally in the eighth inning of that game. He also made an incredible move late in the game where he subbed out Bate McBride for rookie catcher Keith Moreland, which, I mean, think about this. This is a game five of the NLCS. It's a, it's a clinching game. It's a winner-take-all game. Late in the game, it's a very close game. And he takes out maybe his best player at the time, Bate McBride, for a rookie catcher. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. He made amazing moves, and they all paid off for him in that moment. And I think, to me, he's just the reason why the Phillies got over the hump that year. His moves were very sound. They were very smart. And he really didn't care what anybody thought about it. He obviously didn't get along with the players during that season. There was a lot of talk about that. But at the end of the day, he was the reason. His gruff, no-nonsense personality was exactly what the Phillies needed at that time. It was something that the Phillies and Philadelphia hadn't had in a leader, maybe even ever. So it was really very important that Green was part of that team. And he was, to me, the reason that they got over that hump. He certainly has a long legacy in Philadelphia. We're going to miss him, and the Phillies organization is obviously going to miss him. If you have any memories of Dallas Green, please share them with us at Facebook, at Phillies Nation. We'd love to hear those memories. Obviously, spring training is coming to an end mercifully. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And we'll also talk about some of the roster battles that have happened over the spring with the Phillies. Obviously, Brock Stassi has been a big story for the Phillies. Will he make the roster? We'll talk about that with Dan Walsh in a little bit. Also, in one week, the season starts, and the Phillies will come up with a 25-man roster. They'll make those decisions over the next couple days. But there's actual gameplay happening in a week. Jeremy Hellickson will pitch for the Phillies against Scott Feldman for the Reds. Feldman, who went 7-4 with a 3.98 ERA last year, mostly out of the bullpen for both the Astros and the Blue Jays, is getting the start for the Reds. So it's a very interesting opening day start. Really not the best, but it's opening day and whatever. Who cares? Baseball's back. It's going to be great. And I wanted to mention real quick that everybody kind of wants to see some progress with this team, right? We want to see this team win maybe 80 games, 81 games. Can we be a wild card contender at some point here this year? Anything can happen, certainly. This team can actually be a wild card contender. Sure, why not? But it's not probably going to happen. It's more likely that they are more of a 75-win team. I don't see them winning 81 games. Certainly could happen. But they're going to need a lot of luck. Last year, their Pythagorean record, which takes a look at how many runs you scored against how many runs you gave up, was only, I believe, 63-99. and 99. It was the same record that they had in 2015. That means they're probably not going to be a lot better this year than you think. Maybe the 72 wins that they had last year was actually a little bit of a luck thing themselves. So maybe they might win 72 again this year. I think we'd all like to see them win a couple more games this year. 75, I think, is a really good target. We'll talk about that with Dan Walsh in a little bit. But 
Yeah, I, I don't know. 81 wins, I don't know if it's a thing that they're going to be able to do. Uh, if they do it, they'll get a lot of luck, and they'll get some really, really good performances, especially from the prospects, I believe. J.P. Crawford, Nick Williams, maybe Jorge Alfaro, maybe some of the pitchers coming up. Who knows? But I don't know if this is an 81-win team, but I do think that Matt Klintak has had a really good offseason. We didn't really talk about this enough, but he made some really sound moves. Michael Saunders on that two-year deal with $19 million, of course, the second year, an option year, one year for $8 million. That's a really sound move for the corner outfield. If he fails, he fails. But if he doesn't, it's a really nice move. Howie Kendrick on the small deal, too, with that trade uh, that they made. And then bringing in Clay Buckholz on a trade for a low-level minor leaguer. That was a very good move, I think. Even though Buckholz doesn't look that great out of spring. You know what? It's a starter who has a history of being a good starter for long stretches. If the Phillies can get one or two stretches out of him, that's a good deal for them, really. And Jeremy Hellickson, who did not uh, reject that qualifying offer from the Phillies over the offseason and is here for $17.2 million, that's also a good deal. Hellickson is a really good veteran who wants to be here, wants to help the guys. And look, if he can get maybe 20 good starts out of the Phillies this year, we'll take that. It is season preview week at philliesnation.com. We have some great pieces on the site this week, starting with today's Dan Walsh piece on what's the worst that can happen with the Phillies. We'll talk to him later on in the show about that story. Also, we have an NLEs preview from Corey Sharp. Kirsten Swanson gives us a farm system preview. And Mike Sadowski will look at what is the best that could happen with the Phillies this year. Yes, we will entertain our 85 windpipe dreams with Mike Sadowski later in the week. But the 50 greatest games also was finishing off today with the number one game. You know what it is, but I did want to mention that the reason why the 2008 World Series clincher is number one, it was a really great game that took two days to finish. It was tense, and to me it had a lot of great moments. So Chase Utley pump, uh, excuse me, Chase Utley pump fake and throw the Pat Burrell double, the Jeff Jenkins double, the rain in the early part of the game. Just great moments to remember forever. And that's your number one game. You should check it out at philliesnation.com. But now let's talk about the 2017 Phillies, shall we? Well, opening day is a week away, which means that mercifully spring training is finally coming to an end. And we wanted to look at how the Phillies were faring in Clearwater this spring and what we kind of took out of the spring Dan Walsh is here from Phillies Nation to talk about a couple things. I wanted to start with, it's been a very quiet spring, thankfully. No injuries, knock on wood. But there have been some talks about the bench and the bullpen and the spots that need to be filled there. We're recording a week before spring ends, so things could change. But let's talk about the bench and the bullpen. First off, the bench. We know that Andres Blanco, we know that Aaron Altair will probably be there. Three spots seem to be open. Who is on your bench going to Cincinnati, Dan? Well, we still need a catcher. That's kind of indisputable. You need a backup catcher. And the name that people have been throwing around since the start of spring is Andrew Knapp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he hasn't had a great spring. He's, he's had a lot of things to adjust to. Um, but I still wouldn't be surprised to see them choose him just because you, you don't need the best backup catcher in the world when you're probably a sub-500 team. Um, they want Alfaro to get the innings in the minors, so Knapp might be kind of squeezed out down there. Um, so it might be a good chance to um, to see how he does in the majors to kind of you know see if he sinks or swims. Yeah, plus he's got the position flexibility, can play first base, can back up Tommy Joseph. I think the fact that he it's his first camp and he's getting himself kind of settled, it gives him a little bit more room to grow a little bit and have some troubles in the spring. So I think that makes it as well. What about your infield? 
infield, I'm looking at Jesmuel Valentin as a possible utility infielder. Now, he plays predominantly second base, but he has played other positions in the past. Um, I guess not with the the success that you'd hope for, but he certainly hit pretty well in the spring. Um, mm-hmm. He's hitting, what, 350-something. 355 uh, spring. in the spring, yeah, with a 429 OBP. Yes, so that's great. Um, you know, if if he can hit, you know, you have Blanco there to be a defensive replacement, and then really you just need Valentin as a bat off the bench, occasionally spelling a guy in the infield. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think that's exactly what they would need. And then for position flexibility issues, you have Chris Coglin, who they brought in, and he'd have to make three million dollars if he makes a team this year. But do you think he makes a team, even if they have a Valentin and a Blanco out there, do you think they still want that position of flexibility with Coughlin? Yeah, it never hurts to have as much flexibility as you can have. I mean, really, the, the, that last slot, I only seeing it as a debate between Coughlin and Stasi, and Stasi's getting a lot of attention this spring. Yeah, but Coughlin really, really has more versatility than him, as well as he actually has that major league track record. Um, and... Um, and Stasi has really, really cooled off in the last week or two. He's, he's gone, I think it was two for his last 18. Yeah, people went really nuts for him in the first two weeks, and he kept saying, it's only March 10th, it's only March 10th, and now here we are, it's you know March 20-something, and Stasi's now at 313 with a 365 OBP, 688 slug, still very good numbers, but they were otherworldly uh, about two weeks ago, so obviously things happen, and people cool down, and you know, Stasi's one of these guys who, if he doesn't make the team, where is he going to go? There's not really any room in AAA. They're going to have to find a spot for him. But I think that's just a numbers game. He, he might be a guy who they, they might have to put on waivers or something like that at some point this year. That, that's an unfortunate thing, but he's just a little older and probably won't be able to get there. So I'm with you on Coglin. I'm with you on Valentin, and I'm with you on Knapp. The thing about Coglin is he's, on the 40 man, he's not on the 40-man roster. If he doesn't get on the 40-man if he's if he does get on the 40-man, I should say, who's off the 40-man because it is full right now? Who's the guy who's going to be left off? Yeah, the names that seem most vulnerable to me in their position on the 40-man roster are Adam Morgan, Luis Garcia, and Alec Asher. And, you know, none of them are seen as the most high upside relievers, the elite relievers, and that's kind of why they end up fringy mm-hmm. on this roster. Um, so... Adam Morgan, I don't, you know, he doesn't quite have the velocity where you ever will feel, you know, um, I guess, certain when he's in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would worry about him becoming sort of what Brett Oberholzer was for us last year as a lefty long man out of the pen who, who kind of is used as, a, a, you know, a sign of surrender in that particular game. So he might be my pick, even though he has had a pretty good spring. He has had a good spring. Uh, Morgan has a what, two three two three five ERA and eleven strikeouts and four walks in about fifteen innings. Short sample sizes, but very good. Very good for him. And the bullpen itself. I mean, if Morgan is left off, that means he doesn't get on the bullpen, which means who gets in the bullpen. So right now, again, forty man roster has a lot to do with it. Who would you put in the bullpen with your last two spots? I'm thinking Luis Garcia has a fair shot at making it. I mean, every single season it seems like he's on that cusp, and, he, and we see him sometimes, and then he gets optioned, and then he comes back, you know, and then he yeah. goes back to the minors. But, you know, he has diversified his pitching repertoire this spring. He's had some success with it so far. He still throws heat. You know, he throws 95 miles an hour, so you're always at least interested to see what he's working on. So I, I wouldn't be opposed to giving him another shot. And do you think that Joely Rodriguez gets a spot as a lefty, or is anybody else? I mean, they just cut Sean Burnett. 
Pat Mendeed is still on there, the uh, ambidextrous pitcher. Who who makes it? I would see Rodriguez making it out of out of that group that you just mentioned, mostly yeah. because he's left-handed. I mean, he did fine in his very limited time last season. But, you know, if they used him mostly as a lefty one-out guy, it would really, you know, it would help his performance despite not having as much experience as some of these other guys. And I think they do pretty well in that role. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Rodriguez. I think he deserves it. And I know it's a numbers game, but I, there's something about me that kind of would like to see Pat Vendit make the team just because it's a novelty to have a guy who pitches from both sides and it'd be kind of cool to talk about for a couple of weeks. But yeah, at the end of the, I mean, the listen. I would I would watch him every single time he pitched. I would watch, but no, it, we'd all you know. we'd all go nuts on Twitter and all that. It'd be great. Um, so let me let me flip over here to who had the best spring because obviously Brock Stassi had a really good start to spring. But overall, who do you think has had the best spring here in Philly's camp, and who are you most excited to see going into the 2017 season, whether it's in the majors or the minors? Yeah, it's hard to pick just one, and it's hard to say two because, you know, you don't want to pick based just from a stat line, really, especially of in the spring. Um, but I haven't seen all the games, so I can't pick for many other reasons than that, really. So Stasi really cooled off too much to say it's him, although, you know, good for him because he has um, kept himself from being overlooked, you know, so that's, mm-hmm. so that's a good outcome for him. Uh, Daniel Nava had a good spring, but I'm not sure that it will actually get him onto the roster. Um, yeah. And then Scott Kingery turned some heads with his play. Aaron yep. Altair has hit really well. And, really and so that might be – Aaron Altair might be one that I'm most excited about because I think that he is such an athletic player. And he had a disappointing year last year. And now, I, you know, I'm not um, saying that he has the most upside of, every, of anybody or anything like that. But he could be a considerable X factor for the team next no, I, season. I thought his 2015 when he came out uh, from being called up and hit all those extra base hits, he was pounding doubles and home runs. I thought that was a really good sign. He got the wrist injury last year, which really set him back. This spring so far, 283 with a 356 OBP. He's got three doubles, one triple, three homers, so he's hitting extra base hits. He's doing what he has to do. That is a really good sign, and I hope he makes the team. Well, he's going to make the team, but I hope he continues this into 2017 because, look, if they have any problems with Nick Williams or Roman Quinn or anything like that, they could potentially plug an Aaron Altair in for an injury, and he might be able to stem the tide or even be an everyday player as he goes along here because he's still relatively young uh, and can have a couple prime seasons still in the majors. Uh, Dan Walsh, philliesnation.com. We will talk to you a little bit later on in the show, but thanks for coming on to talk about the spring. Thanks a lot. Now it's time for our interview on the Phillies Nation podcast. Our guest this week, I'm so glad to bring him in because he obviously has a history with Phillies Nation. You will know him from there, but if you even have never heard of Phillies Nation and somehow stumbled upon this podcast, you'll know who this person is. He's everywhere these days, um, and he's someone that is uh, close to us, and we love him. And, of course, it's the man, the myth, the legend, Pat Gallen. Uh, Pat, welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast. Tim, did you just use legend with my name? I am, That's right. Uh, I'm humbled by that. <laughs> <laughs> I called you a legend. That is right. Uh, Pat, as we know, he uh, is right now on CBS 3 Eyewitness News this morning as a feature reporter. Uh, and then before that, you were a Phillies Nation editor from 2010 to 14, uh, Phillies Nation TV host for three years. You've been everywhere, the fanatic in the past, and now you do some spots on WIP. Have I forgotten anything that you do these days? Uh, I, think you, I think you got it all. You went through quite a bit there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're a busy guy, and uh, you. I, I I've seen a lot of your clips online. I mean, I don't live in Philadelphia. That's a that's a spoiler for everybody who's listening. 
and I've seen a lot of your clips online, and you seem to, this is, I mean, I know people said this in the past, but you seem to have a lot of fun doing your stories. Um, what, what's, first off, how did you get the job at CBS? How did that all work out for you? Yeah, so you mentioned the timeline of events when we did Phillies Nation TV, which ran for, I think, three years. It's such a blur at this point. I don't even, <laughs> it kind of all blends together. But yeah, I think it was three years of Phillies Nation TV, so it was, editor-in-chief, and then I hosted the show with Corey Seidman. Um, we were on Comcast Sportsnet, and I started to do more with CSN, doing, like, you know, Breakfast on Broad when that first launched and doing some Philly Sports Talk or whatever that show is called now. Uh, and then that sort of extended into doing more freelance stuff with Fox, and I did some of their Eagles pregame shows. I did – Good day, Philadelphia, for a lot of years. And when there were some changes at CBS3, I heard about some things that were going on, had a friend there that was a producer, and basically got my tape over to them. They knew who I was from doing TV and radio in the market for the last few years, and they decided to bring me in for an audition. And that audition went about as well as it could go. And with all the changes, they, they really needed people in place as quickly as possible, and they felt that they could trust me. They liked what I brought to the table. They liked my audition tape, and the rest is history. That was um, that was June or July of um, 2015, so I'm almost at the two-year mark with CBS3, and I've really gotten to do a lot of fun things, as you mentioned. It, it started just doing part-time sports where I would – anchor when needed, I would report when needed, and that evolved into doing, you know, five days a week, and then that evolved into being moved to the morning show because there was a need for someone who tells fun stories, who can kind of be a chameleon, move from sports to telling a cool story outside of sports, something about the city or something about uh, high school kids, whatever it might be. So I guess they decided, hey, He's pretty good. Let's move into the morning show, and, and, and the rest is history. So that's where I'm at right now. It, it's it's a lot different than when I started almost two years ago because, you know, when you're part-time in this business, you never know how long it's going to last. I am I have to say I'm, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world because not only do I get to stay in my home city, I still get to do fun sports things. I get to tell great stories about our city and about the great people of the city. And I get to do it every day. Now, it's an early wake-up, but other than that, <laughs> not much to complain about. Um, you mentioned you're a Philly guy, uh, born and raised in the Northeast. Where in the Northeast exactly? I grew up in Lawndale, and I went to I went to uh, J. Hampton Moore Elementary School okay. on Somerdale Avenue, and then I went to Wilson Middle School and then Northeast High. Yeah, of course. And from there, I went to uh, to Westchester. So, yeah, grew up in, in northeast Philly, Lawndale, Burholm area, and yeah. uh, worked my way up to Westchester. It's, it's pretty amazing that you've been able to stay in, the, and like you said, you know, it's amazing that you've stayed in Philly the whole time and your family's here. What's what's it like when you're, when you're, I mean, you're home all the time, basically. You see your family all the time. But are they, like, commenting on the story that you're doing that, that morning? Or do people, I mean, how does it, what's a daily thing like for, for people who know you? <laughs> And I've known you forever. It's fun. Yeah, it's funny because I get messages all the time from people saying they saw me and I've told the person who you are. And I get text messages from my parents every 
every morning basically saying, oh, we saw you do this. It was so great. Now, my parents think everything I do is great. I mean, that's why they're your parents, so I can get away with it from them. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. I have uh, a really good fan base, and I throw that in, in air quotes, but <laughs> my parents have been outstanding. Um, and, and I think that that is a reason why CBS saw me as, as valuable is because, hey, you're right, and you mentioned it. I, I do have an intricate knowledge of the city, and not that the people who have gone and come back don't have that, but I've been embedded here. I have family with deep roots here. Uh, and I haven't left. So I know the sports scene here as well as anyone. So yeah. that does add some value. And then if you're looking for people to continue watching the show and, and for ratings, hey, it doesn't it doesn't hurt that I, I've grown up here and I know a lot of people and have a lot of friends and family here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's go into the Philly stuff because I want to I want to really kind of get your sort of story in about growing up and especially growing up in uh, Northeast Philly and, 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 you know, your first memories and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you were a Philly fan from the jump. What, what's the first thing you remember being a Philly fan? Uh, my first thing I remember being a Phillies fan was when I got a starting lineup figure of Tommy Herr. <laughs> so that was okay. like 1989, 1990. So I'm like five or six at that point. Um, when it really blossomed – was obviously, you and I are around the same age, was the 93 Phillies. I was nine years old when that team just came out of nowhere. And as a diehard fan as a kid, when something like that happens and you can latch on to it, that is special because you always have that to fall back on. And that 93 team was just so special for so many wa- in so many ways. As crazy as they are and, you know, as a bunch of lunatics that they were, you didn't realize that at the time. You're just going with the flow of it being you're a nine-year-old kid. Your team that you love is winning every night. You're getting to stay up late. You're getting to watch playoff games. It's something that you've never seen before. So my earliest memories are of Dutch, are of, of John Kruk, are of, uh, you know, Kim Batiste, those <laughs> great names. And, of course, of, of Harry and Whitey yeah. was the soundtrack of my childhood and your childhood and a lot of, people's uh, childhoods here in Philly. So I've got great memories, even though a lot of those teams weren't very good. Yeah, yeah I mean, every uh, every summer, su- Saturday, Sunday, we're barbecuing in the in the yard, and we've got the radio on listening to, to Harry. So, so many great memories mixed with so many terrible memories of bad teams. But when you, uh, when you look back on it 25 years into the future, 20 years into the future, it's still kind of cool. Yeah, well, you mentioned the 93, and we're the same, we're about the same age, and I, I thought about it. I was I was nine years old the day that the Phillies uh, played game three of the World Series, and I actually went to that game, which is one of the coolest days of my life. But I was, you know, eight, nine that year, and I have a theory that it's like the perfect age to be a baseball fan because mm-hmm. you're so young that everything that happens on the field is still new and a discovery, and it's really neat because, oh, my God, I've never seen it before. And it's bigger than life. And you're not old enough to where when you're older, you know, you start to analyze the game and you start to kind sure. of get disappointed more and frustrated more and you start to worry about the grind more. But when you're, like, nine years old, you know, it's everything is, like, in a perfect position. And that team, 
it was like a bunch of superheroes. I mean, there were like cartoon, you know, oversized, <laughs> you know, the, the posters of like Lenny Dykstra with the nails and, 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 you know, the Dutch was like this oversized muscular guy. So Pete Cabelia, they all were kind of like larger than life, buffoonish, you know, Saturday morning cartoon characters <laughs> who just happened to hit the ball hard and well and did it for six months, which, I mean, it's it's like the perfect storm. You know, we, we were, I think we were lucky to have grown up at that moment, you know, in that summer to have that team as our team. I agree. And I actually went to game five that year. And I think everyone in Philly has a story of, you know, getting to a World Series game. And, you know, you and I were lucky enough to, to have been to at least one of them. I just remember sitting all the way up in the 700 level and – my dad brought binoculars and we could barely see, I think Ricky Henderson and Devon White were in the outfield and you could barely see them with binoculars. So yeah, cool, cool stories from, from the world series, but you're right. Yeah. It was the perfect storm. And looking back on it, it's like, well, these guys, you know, most of them have been to have taken steroids and things like that. But at the time, <laughs> you know, you're, you're blind to all that. And, and, and it does, it, it continues to be special. Um, you know, to this day, I will say that even at that age, yeah, I, it was when it was sort of in my wheelhouse that I was beginning to play the sport and I was taking to it like a lot of kids who were nine years old. And that team, well, it's kind of funny because they weren't really that, it was a one-year thing. They yeah. weren't really that good outside of that. But right. to have a team that does come out of nowhere and, and do what they did, I think – makes an even bigger impression on you. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's, there was, like, this infusion of baseball fans that came out of that team. Like, like mm-hmm. I, I, there are so many boys and girls who are our age who they will tell you that 93 was the year that they became huge baseball fans. And the, we were the people who were in our early 20s in 2008, and we went to yeah. those games. I mean, when they were filling the ballpark every day. We went to those games. So... I, yeah, you're right. I think that 93 team had such an impression on everybody in the city. Well, I will say that as quickly as that came and, and the joy that we all felt, then the strike came. And yeah. I just remember being so heartbroken because that was the following year, right? That was 94 was the strike year. And I just remember being so upset because I had just latched on to this team and I had become a, a super fan and not only of – of the Phillies, but when you're watching ESPN, because really that was the only thing you could you could see all of the, the teams with, you're watching Ken Griffey Jr. You're watching these stars across the, the country, and you're latching on to them as well. And that's really when I became, right around that time, 8, 9, 10 years old, was when I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Not necessarily be a professional athlete or a professional baseball player, but just be in sports because it was everything – across all the leagues making such an impression on me. And then 94 was such a downer, just knowing that they were going to strike. And I, I remember it taking a couple of years. And obviously with the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa thing, that's when everyone came back. But I just remember being heartbroken for a couple of years. Like, you know what? They left me at the time when I became the biggest fan. I'm leaving them. And it took a little a little time to, to jump back on the bandwagon. And the Phillies weren't that good anyway. So it did make it a little bit more tough over those next few years. 
Yeah, they were they were they were trying to sell us with Heathcliff Slocum and his All Star bid in 1995 <laughs> or whatever year exactly. that was. Um, but did you did you did you go to any games in that well in '93 other than the World Series that that you remember or anything during that period of time that that stand out? There's always weird games in those '90s, you know, when, when oh yeah. I saw two grand slams in a game or that kind of stuff. Was there anything like that when you were growing up? I remember it was '98, yeah, the year we went to see. When the Cardinals came to town, Mark McGuire, we had tickets in the 700 level. And I probably still have photos somewhere uh, from way up yonder during batting practice because that place was probably 40,000 deep when he took the cage. So there are those games scattered throughout. I remember making a sign at the vet and it made it to television. They made us take it down and probably said something dirty on it, you know, when you're a kid, (laughs) high schooler. Uh, but yeah, there are some lean years in between. But you always have those fun games. You remember, you're right. That was that was that's one of the funniest things because when when you're growing up, one of the biggest goals in life as a kid is to get a sign that is put on television at a sporting event. I, I used yep. to make poster board. You know, I would go to the pharmacy down the block and get poster board and make a sign, and then and then we'd go to the game that night, and it would say like you know ESPN. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever the heck you were trying to say on it, but but yeah, it's it. Those were the days when you could go to the vet for five bucks and and you know take up an entire row and put your signs out there and and just be an idiot. But but it's totally different now. But the, yeah, it, it's kind of neat to to be able to reach back and go, yeah, we had we at least had that growing up where we could be kind of fools in veteran stadium. And of course, part of me misses that because now I get to see how the sausage is made every day, having been having covered the Phillies for a couple of years and having been in the locker room every night, having been up close and personal with a lot of the players, you know, you, you, you almost wish the sports fan in you wishes that you didn't see that because now I, I don't watch the games in the same way that I used to because life takes over and there are things that are much more important than that. Uh, but if you can look back with, with fond memories of, of your childhood with your favorite team and your favorite baseball team, at least you've got that. Well, it's so that, that that leads me then to what you were doing. So you started working at Phillies Nation in 2009. Uh, I believe it was 09. Maybe it was 08. It was 09. It was 09. I think it was 09. It was 09. Yeah, it was right after the they won. I actually remember when we brought you in because Brian Michael, who's the founder of PhilliesNation.com, um, he emailed and said, we have this guy, Pat, and you were at, like, examiner.com at the time? Is that right? That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. The Phillies Examiner. Um, and I read your stuff, and I was like, all right, he's not bad. And then I saw your picture, and I thought to myself, we can't have this guy on the site. He's too good looking. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I, that's what I thought. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, I... Well, I, I uh, I'm only there because of you, really, because of you and Brian allowing me to join, and the rest is history from there. So I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but but even then, I knew, like, I saw your picture, and I saw that you were, like, a, a more than competent writer about the Phillies, and I was like, this guy is going to be better than me soon enough. He's going to have a better job. He's going to no, find his way no. on CSN one day. No, I honestly was feeling that at the time. And it worked out. You, my favorite, friend, so. you, my friend, have always been and will always be a better writer. I don't. Looking back, I'm like, how no, did please. I write some of the stuff I did? It was all. I, I have honestly no idea. I wish that no. I actually still wrote like that because 
it does teach you. It does set you up for, for things like I'm doing now. It helps you yeah. write good packages, and it helps you, as crazy as it sounds, it helps you when it comes to radio. And yeah. I, I've sort of lost that edge because I haven't done it in so long. But, dude, you're – come on, stop it. Oh, no, we don't have to go into that, but thank you. Um, but when you were doing Phillies Nation, you know, you started to write about the Phillies basically every day. And while you weren't in the clubhouse and you weren't talking to players or anything like that, you did have more of an innate knowledge of the team and what was going on. Did that – at that time, did you start to see, like, a change in your fandom around that time, 2009, 2010, or was it still the same? Yeah, it changed. And out of necessity because once you – step over that line, you really can't step back over again. And knowing what I wanted to do with my career and having it progress the way that I was hoping that it would, I knew that I was going to kind of leave that fandom behind. Uh, but it happened so fast. You know, I start writing about the team as a blogger, and then you're with Phillies Nation. But once you get to, the, to that level, and Phillies Nation, it was the slogan, but it's more than a blog. It really is. It, it connected you with the fan base, but you're so close to the team, even though you're not in the locker room. And then I was lucky enough to get a job with 97.3 ESPN Radio in Atlantic City. And they knew what we had at Phillies Nation was a good thing, and they wanted to link up. They wanted to connect the two. And with that, I was able to get access to the locker room. And I knew right there, it ends. You have to be professional about it. If you want your career to go in a certain way, you can't. You just can't walk into the locker room and be the world's biggest fan anymore. You've got to put your game face on. And I, I, it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard to do uh, because you're at a certain age, you're 24 or 25, whatever it might be, and you understand. You understand that first and foremost, baseball is a business, and what we're doing was a business in a sense as well. I mean, let's face it, we weren't making millions of dollars by any means, but <laughs> – you're trying to get by, you're trying to build the brand, and you're trying to make something of it. And, you know, as soon as I started covering the team in the locker room, I think 2010 or 2011, yeah, that, that all sort of ended. And it, it, it sucks, but that's that's life. Well, you sort of answered my question there, but, you know, you also started covering the team really as it was as good as it's ever been as a mm-hmm. team. So. I mean, you, I mean, it sounds like obviously you were fine with it because it's work and that's what you wanted to do and that's, you know, what your mission was to, to get to that point. And you knew you had to be yeah. you know, more objective. But still, it's a 102-win Phillies team that you're covering. You must, I mean, part of you, I mean, I was not doing anything at that time. I was just doing my regular job and I wasn't doing any Phillies writing, so I could enjoy it. But there's... You had to feel something like, like oh, oh for sure, for good. sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you still feel pride having been yeah. in the city through all those lean years, and even though you know, not not every day that I was in the clubhouse was it a good day with certain players. I mean, there are egos. Everybody knows that. Um, but when you step back, and even though. I was up in the press box. When you step back and you see the joy that that team brought and you know where you've been as a fan and where you are at that point, you still I still felt genuinely good about the team. And when there are guys like Roy Halladay on that team and Ryan Howard 
uh, and Carlos Ruiz, and a, a lot of those, even the secondary guys who didn't get as much play. Brad Lidge was amazing in the locker room. When you have guys like that, it makes it that much easier and that much more fun. And I have so many fond memories of those great years, um, one being where I was in the press box for Roy Halladay's playoff no-hitter. And I'll tell you what, anyone who says they were not nervous or were not shaking in that press box is a liar because I – I was as nervous as anyone else. The guy next to me was the same way. It just who, 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 who was the guy next to you? Who was the guy next to you? I think it was Mike Gill, actually, from, from 97.3. Okay, okay. Yeah. But I guarantee you that 90% of the people in that press box were, were just as nervous because that's the, that's the competitor in you. That's the athlete in you understanding that what you're seeing in front of you is right. historic. So yeah, that not, was, it's been done once before. I mean, and, and this is the guy's right. first playoff start. I mean, really, it was such an amazing story. It was an amazing If you could bottle up what I felt in the press box that night and you could take that out whenever you wanted, I, it was it was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing. And it was night after night of that. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be there for that playoff no-hitter. I was lucky enough to have been uh, – I was in St. Louis for that squirrel game. I got a credential, went out there. Uh, so even though it didn't go our way, it wasn't. It, 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 nothing to do with the squirrel. That had nothing to do with the squirrel. Oh, of course people, it didn't. But you'll always remember it as that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, let's let's transition from the great days to the 2017 Phillies. Um, this is, you know, look, it's actually not that big of a team this year, I don't think. But 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 how much? Hey, how much do you follow the Phillies? Right now, how much you kind of invested in what they're doing? You know, are you are you able to keep up on some things? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, my my bedtime right now doesn't affect it, but it will once those games start at seven o'clock because I'm in bed asleep before eight o'clock every night. So Ooh. once once uh, once spring and summer rolls around, I'll catch the first couple of innings and then I'll head to bed. But I'm like anyone. I'm very bullish on what this team has to offer, and hopefully in the next year or two, it really all starts to come together. Uh, from from a deep pers- deep prospect perspective, I don't know that I'm there with a lot of other people just yet because it takes me a little bit of time because I'm I'm kind of behind on on my schedule. Uh, but yeah, there's there's so many things to like, not only about the team that they'll put out there this year, but hopefully in the next year, or next two years. So what did you uh, think about some of the moves they made in the offseason? They got Howie Kendrick. They got Michael Saunders, Clay Buckholz. They brought back Jeremy Hellickson. Um, did yeah. you think that this was a good plan to kind of fill in some gaps for a couple of years, or did you want them to go bigger? Did you want them to not bring in anybody and just bring the prospects up? What, 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 where, where do you think? No, I think I was okay with uh, with Matt Clintac's moves. And you could almost – use the, the whole trust the process slogan with the Phillies, too, because everybody knows his trust. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's kind of being played out. But, but with the Phillies, he has made it known and since he got here that there would be a process in place and they wouldn't deviate from that. So I like that they haven't broken the bank for players that they don't need just yet. That they're starting to figure out what they have in those fringe guys that are sort of pushing their way onto the roster. I like Howie Kendrick. I mean, he's not the same guy that he was five years ago in in Los Angeles, but he's still, you know, as you would say, a professional hitter. Uh, I think it's a good move to solidify the the lineup in that way. Um, 
Saunders, yeah, good one-year flyers on these guys. Hellickson obviously is making a lot of money, but for one year you can deal with it, especially knowing that the roster itself probably makes about as much as, as he does. So I don't <laughs> have any problems with it. I don't have any problems with the moves they made this offseason. And a lot of these, um, a lot of the guys they're bringing back have there, – there's something fun about guys like Cameron Rupp and Tommy Joseph and, and you know, Blanco and – Galvis, like yeah, they're not they're not great by yeah. any means, and even I even I think they know that that they aren't great. But if you can put them all together, maybe you get something a little bit special out of it. I'm not saying playoffs by any means, but maybe maybe you start to break toward the 500 mark this year. Let me let me get a, a record uh, from you. What what you think the Phillies are going to finish with? What what what's your final record going to be at the end of the year? Just ballparking. I would go. I'm feeling like 78, 79 wins is is possible. If Buckholtz pans out, if they can get a bunch of innings from him and, and Hellickson, um, and then Franco's, you know, he's got to take the next step. I think that they can they can potentially be a high 70s win team. I wouldn't go further than than 500. Um, but again, if everything comes together with with some of these guys, you 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 have the potential for that. And I say special again in air quotes, but that special kind of year where they exceed your, you know, your expectations. Yeah, I think I think seventy eight, seventy nine is probably on the higher end of what I think they might do. But you're right, you know, there's there is that possibility for something magic to happen, but there's also the possibility for them to be another sixty eight win team or something like that again. So right, I, and by I, by magic I mean like eighty three wins. I'm not, you know, yeah. not ninety win like, team, but like we're still yeah. watching, we're still watching with faded breath on September 10th, maybe something like that. Right. If I could get good baseball through the end of July, I would, I would take even mid July All Star break. They're still kind of hanging around. I'm in. I'll, I'll take that. Okay. Okay. Now I think that's, I think that's possible. I think that is possible. You can find Pat Gowan on uh, CBS Three Eyewitness News this morning, uh, every morning Monday to Friday. Um, typically you're doing something and it's fun and you're having a great time and sometimes you'll be on WIP uh, filling in a little bit here and there and all the time you're a great guy and it's really nice to have you on and I thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about the Philly, the 93 and all the cool stuff with me so thanks Pat I really appreciate coming on Tim no I, I appreciate you asking me and it's always fun to be back and connected with, with Philly's Nation where I got I got a good start in this business thanks to you and thanks to Brian and thanks to Phillies Nation TV and all the great people, the, the thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of fans we have on Facebook and Twitter, whatever it might be. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Well, with the season opening in one week, we obviously want to preview and make some predictions and talk about what we hope will happen with the Phillies in 2017. I got Dan Walsh back with me from Phillies Nation, and he wrote this week, you'll see it on the site this week, about what the worst, uh, what's the worst that could happen with the Phillies in 2017. It's a very interesting piece. And Dan, you know, what, what's the biggest thing uh, out of the piece that you wrote that, that really needs to happen for 2017 in order for the Phillies to show that, yeah, these are, th- this is a team that is getting better? Yeah, really, we just need to know more next year than we do today at this time. Because 
the Phillies have a lot of ways of solving problems, you know, even current problems with the roster, problems that might come up. They have a lot of depth. They have a lot of different guys. They can fill different positions. They have a lot of money that they can spend if they choose to. Mm-hmm. But they need to know how to actually use those resources in order to get better. Yeah. So the role of this year will be clarifying some of those issues, deciding what the biggest problems are, deciding which problems maybe won't be solved internally. Um, so it's kind of a big picture um, yeah. potential problem right there. Yeah, I mean, they've set themselves up really well because they have all the depth that you mentioned. And, you know, I'm just looking at the outfield situation, the starting pitching situation, because I think that's where it really does help. And I've, I've looked at, you know, how last year's outfield on opening day had Cedric Hunter on the opening day lineup. Cedric Hunter was in the opening day lineup. This year, you have Michael Saunders, you have Howie Kendrick, and sure, they've had poor springs, but that's such an upgrade from Cedric Hunter and Peter Burgess and Tyler Goodell. And Tyler Goodell, I mean, he's someone who could actually be off this, off the organization in, in a week or two or whatever. Th- that's unbelievable that they've made that kind of progress. So, so as, as bad as it could happen for the Phillies this year, what is really bad? Like, like if, if, if Armageddon strikes here for the Phillies, like, what's the worst? Is it like a 60-win team? Is it, is it a 55-win team? I mean, it can't be that bad. They've set themselves up so well. Really, to me, Armageddon is any record that's worse than last year's record. It's okay. time for, really just for the fans' morale and for their belief in the system going forward, it's time for the fans to see some of these things taking shape, to, to really have the ability to believe that things are getting better. Because you and I agree that they are. You know, mm-hmm. on paper they are, all these sorts of things. But it, it's time to start to see that and actually be able to, you know, to watch it happen. So any record that's worse than last year's record would be pretty um, damaging to the team and, and to their fan base also. Even even though the Pythagorean record for the Phillies last year was actually closer to the 2015 record, and if they did have a 70-win team, it would be an improvement from their Pythagorean. If it was a Pythagorean 70, like, that's okay. Or that wouldn't be good enough. You'd need to see a tangible on paper 73, 74, 75-win team. I think that most fans would need to see – um, you know, most fans aren't actually as interested in the Pythagorean outcome. Yeah. And so, you know, so they wouldn't take solace in that fact. And so if my concern is in a team that uh, becomes a better on-field product, product sorry, and uh, is one that more people are excited about, then it has to happen in the way that most people are actually accessing the team and, and understanding the team. Um, so most people go more based on on-field results rather than, you know, projection models um, and things of that nature. So, so yeah, I do think that it has to actually surpass last year's record and not just last year's talent level or Pythagorean. Okay, so let's get better this year. And, and okay, so let's talk about what can get better here for the Phillies. Um, we look at Michael Franco last year and how he struggled – and we all believe that working with Matt Stairs is going to help him and maybe not being the focal point of the offense a little bit more is going to help him. You see Tommy Joseph getting a full year of work. You see the corner outfield obviously improving from external places. You see Cesar Hernandez having a great second half, and that could carry over this year. Where do you think in the Phillies' sort of offense, first off, is the best, most 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 likely place where they're going to improve at a tangible level. Um, so do I have to pick one player? 
Uh, or one it, position? You could pick whatever you want. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no rules, huh? Um, yeah. yeah, I think that Franco, for me, is at least the player that I'll be watching most closely. Um, okay. Because he, I think he is a much better player than he was last season, that he could be an all-star caliber player mm-hmm. in many years of his wait, career. Wait, wait, in, a league with, in a league where the other third baseman are Chris Bryant and Nolan Arenado and you know whoever else is out there? Yeah, I mean, somebody from the Phillies has to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's why it's always well. The last year was a double, but I would you know you'd expect it to be Hector Neris or something this year. But go, go ahead, continue about Franco. <laughs> no, but I just mean in terms of his you know wins above replacement, he could he could be on that level with other all stars. Sure, Whether okay. or not he actually makes a team remains to be seen. And then the other reason uh, that he's the one that I'll kind of be focusing on most is that of the areas where they should improve most this year. You know, corner outfield spots are another one. He's the one that will have the most lasting effect and the most lasting presence. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Saunders might have a fantastic year this year, but then he'll probably be gone after this year or after 2018. Yeah. So yeah. Franco, to me, is much more compelling to actually watch. Um, okay, so pitching. What, and we didn't talk about this, but in spring, they didn't seem to be the best pitching staff other than Jared Eikhoff, who looks like he's in midseason form. But where do you think the Phillies are going to be pitching-wise in 2017. Are we going to see more of the same bunch of number three, four starters, some of them hurt, or are we going to see someone emerge? What's the most likely scenario in your mind? You know, something that I think we've, we've forgotten about Aaron Nola is how good he was last season he was before incredible. he got hurt. Yeah. He was incredible. So we've talked about, that, about him since he was drafted as probably a mid-rotation starter, a very good starter. You know, an innings eater if he stays healthy, all these things. But the way he pitched last season before the injury was a top-of-the-rotation pitcher. So he's actually my vote. If I have to pick one guy most likely to emerge, okay. it would probably be Nola, assuming he, he stays healthy. Okay. As far as the record for the Phillies next year, again, you said that it has to be better than 71-91. Do they get better than 71-91? and Are they an 81-win team? Are they more than that? I don't, I don't think they are, but, but are they? I mean, where do, you, where, do you see they, where do you see them finishing? I don't think they're an 81-win team. I think they're closer to the mid-70s, and I'd be comfortable with that. You know, that's progress. That's a team that is not a complete embarrassment, you know, but I'd say around 75 is where I see them. Do you need to see J.P. Crawford and or Nick Williams and or Jorge Alfaro and or Roman Quinn make the team and have regular minutes, regular innings by August? I'd like to see a few people. You know, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be all of them, but you'd like to see at least you know maybe J.P. Crawford comes up and does well, or Roman Quinn comes up and gets a lot of playing time. But really, more important to me is that whatever level they're playing at. They're doing well. They're improving. They're working on things. They're becoming better players. Yeah, I think. And and if that doesn't all happen, I mean, we talk about the worst case scenario, and to me, that's probably the worst case if if none of those guys perform well or get hurt or something like that. But even if that doesn't, if all that works like that, they go into next year with a boatload of money, and they can get a couple of free agents and say, okay, we're going to build the other way for a little bit now, or I, you know, they could figure something out. I think this is now a place where the Phillies have much more flexibility than they've ever had. Yeah, exactly. And that's why this year has to be one where we start to answer questions. So we know, should we acquire players from outside the organization, or are we set? Can we just fine-tune with free agents, and these guys will be the core that we need them to be? 
Right. Well, Dan Walsh, uh, thank you for coming on, and thanks for talking about what we hope to see this year, and hopefully some of those things happen, and hopefully we see some prospects making some strides this year. But, I mean, that's why we're here, I guess. But, Dan, thanks for coming on, and, uh, yeah, enjoy the first week of the season, and I'm sure we'll be talking as uh, we get going here and they go to Cincinnati. All right. Thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again to Dan Walsh for coming on and talking about the Phillies this week with me. And thanks to Pat Gallen, my guest this week. Awesome to talk with Pat. He's doing some great stuff again at CBS3 Eyewitness News this morning. Watch him in the morning. Also, thanks to bensound.com for the theme music and bumpers. If you would like to contribute theme music and bumpers to our show, please email me at tim at philliesnation.com. Or just message us on Facebook or Twitter or something. Let us know if you have music because we'd love to have it on the podcast. And if you have any stories about the Phillies that you want to share with us, please email me again at tim at philliesnation.com. You can find the Phillies Nation podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and at YouTube at Phillies Nation. Find Phillies Nation at Twitter at Phillies Nation, Facebook.com slash Phillies Nation, and Instagram at Phillies Nation. And go to philliesnation.com this week for the season preview, what's the worst that can happen, what's the best that could happen, the NLE's preview, a farm system preview, predictions, and so much more. And Monday, 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 the Phillies begin their 2017 season against the Cincinnati Reds. We will have full court coverage, even if it's baseball, it's still full court coverage of the Phillies. Plus, so much more. We'll have the Phillies Nation podcast in the morning for your coffee before first pitch. Oh, my goodness. Baseball is here for the Phillies Nation podcast. I am Tim Malcolm. Thanks for coming this week. We'll see you next time.